We're back in Matthew today, and we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 14. Now, have any of you heard of this movie? It's called, it's a Brad Pitt movie. It's called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Any of you ever heard of this movie? Okay. Um, well, that's where, kind of our, where I get the title of our sermon today. It's called The Assassination of John the Baptist by the Coward Herod Antipas. Okay. And uh, here in John 14, we read, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So now, verse 3 through 13 is kind of a flashback to tell us why he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Here's the story. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her, for you to be married to her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him, John, to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Let's see what we can learn from this man, Herod, who chops off the head of John the Baptist. Real simple outline I want us to, to cover. First, we want to see the corruption of Herod, and then we want to see the conscience of Herod, that this is a man struggling with right and wrong, and then finally the cowardice of, of Herod. But to, uh, to begin, uh, to look at the corruption of Herod, um, what you need to understand is Herod comes from a, a tangled mess of a family full of cowardice and power and fear and incest. Uh, you're going to see this tangled web. And to start, we need to actually look at his father, Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the king who was alive when Jesus was born as a baby. Now, Herod the Great was not Jewish, but Caesar put him in place as king over all of Israel. All right? So he's the king. Uh, over Israel when baby Jesus is born, and he is so threatened 
that a king has been born, that he finds out where this baby has been born in Bethlehem, and he has all the babies slaughtered. Nice guy, right? So let me tell you a little bit more about Herod. Herod um, actually had nine wives, but here we have one, two, three, four, five of them listed. These are the five that actually had sons, all right? Now, um, he was obsessed with his beautiful wife, Merimame, right? He was so obsessed with her beauty and so jealous of her, he said if he ever died, uh, he could not bear the thought of her marrying somebody else. So orders were given that when he died, she was to be put to death. Okay, isn't that love? You know? I can only imagine myself with you. So then um, his mother, mom, tells Herod, I think Merimame is being unfaithful to you. And he just freaks out and he has her killed along with uh, hundreds of other friends and family who he suspected uh, might be out to get him. And then, of course, he wouldn't want her sons, Aristobulus and Alexander, uh, to be king. So he kills them, and he uh, installs Antiper, Antipater, actually, uh, to be king on his deathbed, but then actually has him strangled and killed. So he kills these three sons, so they cannot be uh, king. A right? um, little bit more about this guy. He feared that nobody would mourn when he died. So he gave an order that a lot of Jewish leaders be gathered and put into a stadium. And the moment that he died, they were to be killed so there would at least be mourning in Israel when he died. Okay? So that's dad. That's the dad. Okay? So then um, he has these sons. He has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sons. He kills these three. Now, when he dies, Israel is divided into three sections and given to the next three, uh, Herod Antipas. Now, this is the Herod that we read about in today's passage. Archelaus and Philip II are also given sections of Israel uh, to rule over. Now, um, Herod Antipas is married to Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus. She originally marries her uncle, Herod Philip. Okay? So we have an incestuous relationship between Herodias. She was a beautiful uh, young girl. So Herod Antipas says, I want her. And he steals her away from his brother Philip and marries her. So she goes from one incestuous uncle relationship to another uh, incestuous uncle relationship. So it's all in the family. Okay? Can, can you just hear people starting to go, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Okay? Some of you have no idea what that means. Now, on top of that, Herod, Philip, and Herodias had a daughter, Salome. She's the one who dances. Um, so when she moves over here to, to this side of the family, um, 
she dances before Herod at his birthday party. She was probably 12, 13 years old when she does this salacious dance for Herod. Um, just to, to add to the story, when she grows up, she marries another one of the brothers. We don't know which one. These are dead. This is her real father. This is her stepfather. So it had to be Archelaus or Philip II. Uh, we don't know which one. I don't know which one. But uh, so just to keep things all in the family, she marries another one of the brothers. So it's a sick, twisted, demented family incest and stealing wives away and power and beheading and so forth. Okay? Now, it is Herod's birthday. So his wife throws a birthday party for Herod. And uh, you can imagine the drinking that goes on. And her special gift to her husband is to have her 13-year-old daughter perform a salacious dance for dad. And he is pleased. And he says, well, Salome, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. She goes, Mom, what is it that you want? And there's one thing that Herodias wants. John the Baptist had on a platter. Why? Because John the Baptist, who's now in prison, he was asked, hey, what do you think about uh, this marriage between Herodias and Herod? And he said, it's, it's not a true marriage in God's sight. It's, they're supposed to be married. He stole her away. It's not a legitimate marriage. So Herod arrests him, throws him in jail, and Herodias is just seething and says, kill him. So he chops off John the Baptist's head. Now, um, what's interesting is this. I want you to note, note this. In our text, even though Herodias and Herod Antipas are legally married, there was a legal divorce and a legal marriage, notice what it says in the text. For Herod, Herod Antipas, had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Legally, divorced and remarried. But in God's eyes, Herodias is still married to Philip. You know, we see this in the genealogy of John the Baptist, or not John the Baptist, of Jesus. As uh, so-and-so begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so. Look at this, Matthew 1.6. Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by not his wife Bathsheba, but by the wife of Uriah. For all eternity, there in the genealogy of Jesus, we are reminded that Bathsheba was really not David's wife. She was the wife of Uriah. You go, why doesn't, uh, why don't, doesn't Scripture acknowledge the new, you know, the divorce and the remarriage? Well, Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit 
adultery. So if you get divorced and remarried, and if you don't have biblical grounds, biblical grounds is that, there's, uh, that the one spouse commits uh, sexual immorality. If that is not there, and you get divorced and remarried, you are making your spouse commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as against the system as that is, as against uh, what, you know, what uh, you can do here in America, no fault, fault divorce and remarriage, you can get a divorce and a remarriage legally, biblically, the Bible doesn't let us do that. And John was beheaded because he wouldn't compromise on that. Another lesson we can learn from this, so much for the if it's legal, it must be okay argument. All right? It doesn't work with divorce. It may be legal, but it may not be biblical. It doesn't work with abortion. It may be legal, but that doesn't make it biblical. Same thing with pornography. It may be legal, but it is not biblical. Okay? Now, I know I'm stepping on toes here. But John stepped on toes and got his head chopped off. Now, you go, what if I've done this? What if I've had an unbiblical divorce and remarriage? There is forgiveness in Christ. Right? But he does want you, if you've done this, to repent. Doesn't, he doesn't want you to divorce your current spouse and go back to No, you've made a commitment now. But repent and admit to him that you've sinned. Right? Herod, he didn't want to repent. He wanted to kill the preacher. Shoot the messenger is what he did. But here we have the corruption of Herod. Now, even though he's a very corrupt man, he still has a conscience. So we're going to take a look at his conscience now. Notice, the girl says, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. He feels bad about chopping off John the Baptist's head. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. I mean, hey, when you make a drunken promise in front of your party guests, <laughs> you got to go with the people. Right? But he, he, you can see his conscience struggling here. His conscience is still struggling when the passage begins. He is he has killed John the Baptist, but now he hears about Jesus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. It's almost as though he's haunted. I know I killed that righteous man, John the Baptist, but it's over with. <gasps> There's another guy working miracles. It must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Do you see this tormented man? His conscience is tormenting him. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the conscience. First thing I want you to understand, the conscience is not infallible. But it has been programmed by God with God's law 
So we have an inherent, not an infallible, but an inherent knowledge of right and wrong. Okay? You know, um, those of you who follow the Ray Comfort ministry, he knows this. He says when he's talking with an atheist, they want to raise, well, what about evolution? What about, uh, what about this objection to God and this objection? And he says, all right, let me cut through that and talk to your conscience. He starts talking to them about the law of God. Have you ever lusted? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? And all of a sudden, these these big, tough atheists start to crumble. Well, well, yeah, I have. What he's doing is he's appealing to the inherent knowledge of the existence of God in their heart and the law of God written on their heart, and they start to feel the guilt of being a sinner before God. Here's what uh, Romans 2 says. The question is, what about the unsaved person, the Gentile, who's never heard the gospel? Um, Is he accountable before God? And Paul says, they, the, the Gentile without the law, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, how, how, does, how does that work? While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What that's saying is, take even the pagan on the island who's never heard the gospel, doesn't have a copy of the Bible. How, how is it fair for God to judge him? Because on his heart is written the law of God. And when he violates it, he feels guilty. And when he doesn't violate it, he feels good. Right? The unsaved person, even without the Bible, knows right from wrong and his conscience convicts him. So, uh, point number one with the conscience is this. Your heart has the law of God programmed into it by God. Point number two, though, the conscience can be corrupted. In fact, the conscience can be ignored. It can even be seared. Just like your skin, uh, it's sensitive to touch. But if you over-irritate it, it loses sensation. And you can even burn your skin and sear it so there's no more nerve endings left. Paul writes this. He speaks of, in in 1 Timothy 4.2, liars whose consciences are seared. He's talking about liars who've crept into the church, who are leading the church, and they've lied so much, and they've uh, denied the truth so much, that their consciences are no longer sensitive. You go, how can some of the crazy things happening in the church today happen? Don't these people see what they're doing? Nope. They have no conscience. They can get away with murder. Or they think they can get away with murder. Because you can sear your conscience when you don't follow your conscience. Now again, this is not Jiminy Cricket theology. Just follow your conscience. Um, the, The conscience is not infallible. But it does have the law of God. It's been programmed by God. But when you ignore it again and again and again, it becomes insensitive. There was a plane crash in South America a while ago. And um, the pilot crashed right into a mountain at night. 
And they found the black box. And on the black box was the, the last recorded um, activity that went on. And you could hear the automatic warning system saying, pull up, pull up. And the pilot thought he knew better. And he said, uh, the last thing he says, he's talking to the automatic warning system. Shut up, gringo. He knew better. And he turns off the warning system. <laughs> crashes. That's a picture of the conscience. Warning, warning, shut up. Warning, shut up. And you, you sear your conscience so you're no longer sensitive to right and wrong or to the gospel. Let me show you an example of this with another, uh, another Herod. Okay? In fact, let me go back to the, the flow chart here. Here we have uh, Herod the Great, and then Merimame has uh, Aristobulus, and then there's Herodias, but Herodias had a brother, Herod Agrippa, and uh, Herod Ag Agrippa uh, had a child named Drusilla, and Drusilla married Felix. Felix is the governor, and Paul stands before Felix on trial. All right? And you're going to see something. You're going to see this same Herod sickness in the whole family line here. It says, after, in Acts 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, um, by the way, Felix is now on his third wife, and he stole the lovely, beautiful Drusilla away with the use of some sorcerers. I mean, just sick, twisted stuff. But he and his 19-year-old his, uh, Drusilla, who was Jewish, uh, so let me read again. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, now look, look at what Paul decides to talk about. Felix can set him free. Felix has the power to say, Paul, you're, you're, you've been arrested under false pretenses. Obviously, you're not guilty. Get out of here. But what does Paul talk about? He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. What, is, what does this mean? He reasoned that on judgment day, you need perfect righteousness to be saved. You need a life of self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. And there's a coming day of judgment. Paul, you idiot, why don't you just pacify him? Why don't you just make him feel good? Give him a seeker-friendly, feel-good sermon you could be released if you would just twist it and turn it right. No, Paul is more concerned about Felix's salvation than he is about his own freedom. So he, he uh, preaches about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Busy, got to check my, my day timer. I'm busy, got to go. All right, get out of here, Paul. All right. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. You see the conscience? Here's a man without any self-control as he steals women and marries them. At the same time, so he sends them away. Don't, don't call me, I'll call you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Okay, Paul's this great apostle. 
There may be some support that people give to Paul. Maybe he'll bribe uh, Herod, Felix. Right? So he sent him, uh, he sent for him often and conversed with him. It's, it's one of these deals where I'm not going to believe what you say, but I really find what you're saying interesting. You know, there are people in every church like that. I, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying the gospel. I'm really interested in how the preacher preaches. Really interested in religion and Jesus. I ain't buying it. Okay, that's Felix. Right? So he sent for him often and conversed with him. But, but look, bottom line, it says this. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left him in prison. Doesn't do the right thing. Listens to Paul. Hopes Paul will bribe him. Ah, but the Jews put him in there for a reason. I'll do a favor. We'll just politically play it safe. Leave Paul in there. See ya. Another man whose conscience is tormented, but he, uh, he does nothing about it. Um, Paul purposely agitates his conscience. Do you know that the job of the gospel preacher is to preach God's law, like we did earlier, talked about divorce, talked about immorality. The job of the gospel preacher is to preach God's law, to awaken the conscience of the sinner, to awaken uh, the conscience of its guilt before a holy God, so the conscience will then flee to Christ for forgiveness. That's the way it's always been, but unfortunately today, the church is full of cowards who won't do that. The church is full of preachers who would rather have masses of people who are never offended and never saved. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. Yet we see John the Baptist did it. We see Jesus did it. We see Paul did it. Because he hated people? No, because he loved them enough to tell them the truth that they were on their way to hell because of their sin and that they needed Christ as a Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great English preacher, said this, the gospel, which merely says, come to Jesus and offers him as a friend and offers a marvelous new life without convincing of sin, convicting of sin, is not New Testament evangelism. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law, and it is because the law has not been preached that we have had so much superficial evangelism. True evangelism must always start by preaching the law. The trouble with people who are not seeking for a Savior and for salvation is that they do not understand the nature of sin. It is the peculiar function of the law to bring such an understanding to a, man, uh, to a man's mind and conscience. That is why great evangelical preachers 300 years ago in the time of the Puritans and 200 years ago in the time of Whitfield and others always engage in what they call the preliminary law work. But we don't do that today because in the name of evangelism, we don't want to upset people. Now, here's a question. 
There's a question that you go, how do I know if in my church this is being done properly or not? Simple question. Can you imagine John the Baptist being invited into the, pulpus, into the pulpit of your church today, or would he be considered an embarrassment? Would John the Baptist, a John the Baptist type person, be welcomed into the pulpit today, or would that be just a little too embarrassing for our people. Shows you how far we've come. Right? Now, let's take a look at one last thing. The cowardice of Herod. And the king was sorry. His conscience is bothering him. He knows this is wrong. But, because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it his head, to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. He knows it's wrong. He feels bad about it. But I've got guests who I made a drunken oath in front of, and what will they think if I don't chop off the prophet's head? You know who he reminds me of? Pontius Pilate. The Jewish leaders bring Jesus before Pilate, the governor, and they say, crucify him. Pilate examines him and he, he declares three times that he's innocent. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. But he feels the political pressure. Obviously, they want this guy dead. He tries to get off the hook three times. One time, he has Jesus scourged, hoping that the blood will satisfy their bloodlust but they still want him crucified. Right? Then he tries the Barabbas ploy. Oh, yes, we release one prisoner. Obviously, you want me to release Jesus, right? No, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. That didn't work. Then he does the Herod ploy. The Herod ploy is, Herod's here. Herod's in town today. Let me send him to Herod, same Herod. Maybe he'll judge. But Herod doesn't do anything. He just lets him go back to Pilate. So finally, Pilate says, well... It's either do what's right or please the people. I wash my hands of the blood of this man. Crucify him. Coward. You know, it takes courage. It takes courage to take a stand for Christ. The world will tell you, Christians, or those of you seeking to be Christians, the world will tell you that you are a coward if you don't follow them in their sin. You're the mamby-pamby coward. Come on, follow us into our life of depravity. The Bible makes it clear, though, who the real cowards are. It takes courage to be a follower of Christ. Man up. You, you have to choose. You're going to be a coward. You're going to be called a coward by somebody. Would you rather be called a coward by God? or a coward by the world. Herod chose. He'd, he'd rather be accepted by the world. Pilate chose. He'd rather be accepted by the world. Take a look at this. Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, and this means those 
who weigh this out and they choose the world over Christ. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I don't know the hearts of people, but I imagine in a room this size, there are people who have heard the gospel, that we're sinners, Christ died for us in our place, and he offers free salvation for all who will turn to him in faith. There are people who've heard that. You know it's true, but there's one thing stopping you from turning to Christ. What will people think? It's not a matter of, is it true? It's not a matter of, am I really a sinner? No, you know you're a sinner. You know it's true. The real stumbling block for you is what will people think? Let me talk to the youth, the teens here. Okay? You know it's true. You know you need Christ. But you go to school five days a week. Where Christ's name is mocked. His name is used as a curse word. And if you got too religious, what would they think of you? You have a choice. To be a coward in the eyes of the world or a coward in the eyes of Christ. Which will it be? Businessmen. You gotta make that sale, don't you? You've got clientele who, if you get too religious, are going to mock you. They'll go someplace else. You have a choice. You can't play it both ways. And many choose the world over Christ. Then there's those whose parents would be greatly disappointed if you chose to follow Christ. Maybe older parents. We raised you a certain way. What are you doing rejecting our heritage and playing around in one of them Bible churches? I don't know why I just turned into... <laughs> Where did he come from? <laughs> the voices. They <laughs> okay. I found that the biggest reason people don't come to Christ is not intellectual problems, not that they don't believe it's true, it's what will people think? I'm interested in Christ, but the person I'm sleeping with, what will they think? But Scripture makes it very clear. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you know what? For ages, people have tried to straddle both sides. I want to be accepted by the world, and I want to be accepted by God. We want to be a church that, that can appeal to the world and can appeal to God. No, that's called compromise. 
when you ha- they say when you have a foot in the boat of the world and a foot in the boat of Christ, you'll split your pants. Okay. Mark eight thirty eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Take a stand for Christ. You know, so many people, and I, I do not believe baptism saves you, okay? Baptism does not save you. You are saved by faith alone. But true followers are called to be baptized. And when you push that a little too hard, people flee. I don't have to take a public stand for Christ. You don't? You don't? I got to say it. Get in the tank, right? Unashamedly, be, stand up for Christ and say, I have chosen to follow Jesus, mom and dad. I have chosen to follow Jesus, kids at school. And you know what? I'm so proud of it. I'd like to invite you to come to my baptism. How about that? I have chosen to follow Jesus, person I'm sleeping with, and I want you to come to my baptism, and we're not sleeping together anymore. Pastor, you're expecting too much. Really? I'm expecting too much of the Holy Spirit of God to come into a person's heart and change it so they are unashamed of Jesus? What has happened to the church today that we think we have to compromise the power of God and what He can do in the hearts of people? Take a stand for Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Herod made his choice. He was a coward. Don't be a coward. Be courageous for Jesus. Now, one last thing. They come to Jesus and tell him about John the Baptist being beheaded. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. I need to get away. Now, what was he doing? I'm sure he was mourning the death of not only his friend, but his relative, John the Baptist. But I'm sure he also reflected on the fact that in a few months, he would stand before this same man, Herod. Herod would examine him, find him innocent, but rather than set him free, send him back to Pilate. Where Pilate would examine him, find him innocent, and rather than set him free, send him to the cross. Jesus would be sentenced to crucifixion by cowards. Now, the good news is that's all according to God's perfect plan. And Jesus goes to the cross sent by cowards to die for cowards like you and me. 
who have said no to God, who have said no to his law, who have said no to Christ, but he opens our eyes, and when we turn from our sin to Christ, we are forgiven. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, we admit it. We are all cowards. We see ourselves in, in the Herods, choosing the easy way out. Yet, Lord, we believe you died on the cross for us, and you promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord, where we turn from our failure, we turn from our cowardice, and we turn to you, we will be forgiven. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you took the most wicked sin, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and turned it into our salvation. And may we all be proud of the cross. May we be unashamed. May Jesus be glorified. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.